Welcome to the My Family Thinks I'm Crazy podcast. My Family Thinks I'm Crazy, a podcast where I, your host, try to give you some tips on how you can explain all this weird, wild, crazy conspiracy stuff to the people you love most. Because that's what I've been trying to do for the past 10 years with no success. I've been telling everybody that our government is shady. censorship is is gross but that's what you do when you when you know you're busted that they're they're acting you know guilty of these charges i mean we're accusing them of massive censorship and then they're proving us right by doing this over and over again and that's what you do when you feel like you're losing your grip or that you want to lock everything down and you're sort of desperate because like They'll let you talk about the moon landing all day long, but the minute you get on Syria or the Federal Reserve or something that, that's actually important, like right now important, then they they just get rid of you, and they don't and, and it and they don't even care if they if it seems illogical. Like I was talking to Whitney Webb, and, and she she got thrown off of Patreon, uh, and Patreon said, "Well, we're suspending you until you delete." these videos on our channel about this medical information. Once I knew that there was some fuckery going on, that the government will, will make an example out of you if they if they want to send a message to the rest of the, the citizens, don't fuck with us on this. You know, we, this is something that we will, we will make your life hell, Julian Assange, Chelsea Manning. Russell Olberg, we will bury you under the prison if you fuck with us on some of these things. If you expose our war crimes, if you mess with our currency, you do those things and we will come after you. This is what, this is what desperate and, and, and psychotic governmental agencies and governments do. They, they see something and they pose it or they view it as a threat to their existence. And you just start banning it or arresting it or trying to destroy it because they just can't, they, they don't want the competition. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the My Family Thinks I'm Crazy podcast. Today, we are joined by Charlie Robinson. You might know him from the Octopus of Global Control or his podcast, Macroaggressions. He's also on the podcast, The Union of the Unwanted which if you're not hip to that yet, you should be. It comes out twice a month. And it's basically like the league, DC League of Superheroes for conspiracy podcasts. So 
you know, unless you're a Marvel guy, in that case, it's like the X-Men of uh, podcasts. So without further ado, Charlie Robinson, how are you, my friend? I'm good, man. Thanks for having me. It's funny. Yeah, we're we're all a bunch of weirdo mutants, though, sitting around the table, ostracized from society, you know, well, trying to get I respect, think, having I people think, call us names. <laughs> well, you know, I think one thing that, you know, is similar with conspiracy theorists and superheroes is they always have an origin story, right? So yeah. Maybe we can get into a little bit about that with you, Charlie. What was the first conspiracy, maybe when you were a kid, when you were a teen, maybe even when you were a young adult, if it took you a while to wake up, what was the first conspiracy theory that really cracked the the shell, so to speak? Santa. (laughs) Santa (laughs) (laughs) Santa. Once I knew that there was some fuckery going on with that Santa situation, I was like, if this is a lie, what else is a lie? Now, that that probably, I mean, that's sort of like, I'm a parent now and I, and we have this sort of debate about like, oh, like at what point do you sort of explain the whole thing? And then you feel kind of hypocritical, especially if you're like me, you're writing books about like exposing government secrets and lies or, or, or uh, the NSA spying techniques, you know? And meanwhile, I have a, a baby monitor, you know, in my, in the baby's room watching her. I'm like to- watching the, like totally comfortable doing that, of course, but not, not, not okay with the NSA collecting my data. So <clears throat> I th- my, my first real like the real conspiracy that I got into was was probably 9-11, really. I mean, one that just kind of like just didn't seem right to me. And 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 to be clear, I didn't have it, I didn't like have it figured out, in, you know, on that morning or anything like that. It took me a couple of years before I was able to sort of get the feeling that things didn't add up. <clears throat> I think what did it really was when you had 9-11 and then you had the Afghanistan war right after it, you're like, well, I don't know, maybe there's, maybe there's some connection. But then when they went into Iraq, I was like, wait a second, we're now we're just making reasons up, you know, and that's the, so then I started to look into it a little bit more and, you know, you start watching some videos, you start watching loose change and, and things like that. And you go, Oh God, I mean, there are a lot of questions here. And so that started me down the path. But then when I, in 2007, in the spring of 2007, I went on a scuba diving trip. And right before I left, my buddy said, Hey, I've got a book. You should read this book. It's Confessions of an Economic Hitman by John Perkins. He said, I think you might like it. And I was like, okay. So I read this book and it opened my eyes to like the financial and the banking component of how they use debt as a weapon to enslave countries and get them into deals that they didn't want to get into. And, and as I was reading that, you know, I I was working in Las Vegas in new home sales and it was like 2007. It was still booming. I mean, it was insane. And I'm, I'm selling houses to people some of them are not in really in a position to buy a house. You know, like one guy, I remember he had like, he made $10 an hour and he was trying to buy a $405,000 house. Now he was a guy from Mexico who, who had come to the country, you know, a couple years earlier. And, and he was, he was excited, you know, cause he was like going to get a, he was going to get into this American dream. He was going to buy himself a house and everything. And I just knew he was, you know, we qual- we approved him for it. 
So he was good to go, but I just knew it was going to end badly because he could barely, you know, he could barely cover the payments. And, and I was like, why are they doing this? And and what I realized what it was that after reading John Perkins' book, where the IMF and the World Bank would extend credit to these countries like Ecuador and get them to build a hydroelectric power plant that they, you know, that some, that this John Perkins guy would talk them into. Cause he worked for a company called Maine, which was like Halliburton, like Dick Cheney's, like a multinational engineering firm. He'd say, Oh, well, we'll build this whole dam and hydroelectric power plant for you for, you know, X number of dollars and the IMF and world bank will finance it. They're, they're already good to go. You're approved, you know, and then, Oh, and it'll pay for itself in 10 years and you'll have all this electricity, all these great things, right? We'll put some money in your pocket to the president. And then they get a couple of years in and it doesn't pencil out. In fact, it's it, they're falling behind in their payments. And so the IMF and World Bank would come up to them and like a loan shark and say, you know, you owe us a bunch of money and you haven't been paying. So, you know, we're going to have to work something out. So they'd get them into some weird deal where they had to like, privatize their fishing industry or let the U.S. build a military base there or vote a certain way. And when the U.N. had resolutions that they want, you know, some deal. <clears throat> and and so I, I, they were so they were loaning out fake money that the Fed printed for free and they were taking back tangible assets. And I was like, whoa, what a scam. And then I realized, hang on a second you know, when we're doing that too, like extending loans, mortgages to these people that have no business. And when they fall behind on their payment, boom, just take it back, you know? And I was like, oh my God, I'm a part of this. You know, I felt like I, I had, I had no idea. I didn't understand the game. I didn't realize that there even was a game, let alone that I was part of it. And, and I, it really bothered me. You know, I, I felt bad. I lost, I mean, and I lost, <clears throat> you know, I lost two houses during that crash as well. So it was like, I was drinking the Kool-Aid. I wasn't just selling, I wasn't selling houses to people and going sucker, you know, I, but I was buying, you know, extra houses as I could and really believing in it. And I, and I, I was determined to not have that happen again. And so I wanted to learn as much as I could about these, the games that they're, that these financial institutions and these marketplaces and banks, how they, how they, how it really works. And so I started watching videos and reading books about how money works and that got me like, oh shit, this is the most devious trick of all, you know? And and that that just and then I wound up having a job where we were a mid-rise condo community, but it was half built. And so they were still building it out. And while they were finishing building it out, nobody was coming to the sales center. I was the only person there. So I would go like six hours without seeing another person. So I just watched video after video after video. I mean, and I just got into all this stuff. <clears throat> and, and it didn't, and then I didn't, I didn't really think that there was much, you know, I didn't really have any sort of role in this. I just was an observer of this information. And then one day I was having a conversation with my mom and I was showing her some, I don't know, some new conspiracy I had come across that was crazy. And, and she was like, this is all really interesting and, and neat, but like, what are you going to do about it? Like, what are you doing with all this information that you have? And I was like, I don't know. I'm not, I don't, I didn't, I don't know. I didn't know I had to do anything with it. 
And then I started thinking, well, what am I doing with this information? And I thought, well, I could make a movie. Well, I don't really know how to make a movie. Or maybe I could, maybe I'll write a book. And so that's what got me thinking about writing the first book. And then I did it in total secrecy. I didn't tell anyone I was doing it. I didn't tell my wife I was doing it. She found out when the book showed, the box of books showed up from the printers. And I wasn't there to intercept it. And she opened it up and she was like, <laughs> what the hell are all these books? And she flipped them over and it was my face on the back. And she threw me out of the house for two days for emotionally cheating on her <laughs> oh my god oh, man. <laughs> she wow. was so pissed at me i was like listen like given this current situation i could have like another family in utah like i could be cheating i could there's a million things much worse than me writing a book behind your back like seriously are you gonna be that mad about the and oh, wow. and and oh. so but she was like well it, you're you were cheating on me with your time I was like, all right, well, yeah, I was. But the reason why I was doing that was because my family thinks I'm crazy. <laughs> I felt I because well, that that there was definitely that. But I also felt compelled to do it. And I didn't want somebody to tell me to stop. And if she had said, You gotta stop this, I probably would have would have stopped just out of respect for her asking me to stop. But so I didn't I didn't want to ask for permission. I just wanted to do it. You know, it was one of those beg for forgiveness instead of ask for permission situations. And, uh, was you know, so that I, that, 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 that's how it came about. It, was it, was it something that was inside of you kind of pushing you towards this? I mean, yeah. I can relate. I feel like there's a certain mission that you take on, right? And that's why maybe the secrecy was necessary, <clears throat> you know? Yeah, that that's exactly, I, I felt like I wasn't, I wasn't ready. You know, I needed, I needed to, I needed to not tell anyone. I didn't want those expectations. I didn't, Hey man, how's that book coming? You're like, Oh, I never finished it or whatever. I, did, I just didn't, <clears throat> you know, early on, I didn't know if I was going to even want to do the whole thing. So I just said, I'll write a bunch and then I'll see how I feel. And I'll, you know, you know, and that way, if I don't, if I don't say anything about it, then there's no like expectations that I'm not meeting of anybody. So that's why that at first is why I, I, I just wrote it to see if I if I could get anywhere with it. And then the more I wrote, the more I wanted to write, then it became okay, I like this, I feel compelled to do this, and I don't want to stop doing it. So now I'm not telling anyone, because I don't want them to tell me to stop. So that that was how that all came out. And then I put it out in August of 2017. <clears throat> and the I did an interview with Michael Rivero, he was the first interview I ever did. He's in Hawaii. The second interview I did was with a guy named Richard Serrett out of Toronto. Conspiracy got, Zone, right? What's that? His podcast is the Conspiracy Zone, I think, right? I think so. Yeah. Richard Serrett. Yeah, I like this. <clears throat> he's show. had a couple. He's had a couple of them. So we get done recording this. This is the second interview I've ever done. And when we get done recording, he says that was great. And I was like, oh, thanks so much. And he says. No, that was really great. He says, I don't know if you know this, but I'm the, I'm the once a month weekend fill-in host on Coast to Coast. Have you ever heard of that? And I was like, yeah, I've heard of that. <laughs> and he's like, would you want to come on in like uh, my next slot is three weeks from now. Would you want to come on? I was like, yes. So the third <laughs> interview I did was Coast to Coast, which went out to like two and a half million people. <laughs> and it was like three hours long. And I was just pacing and like, you know, you get better at doing interviews, the more you do. And so when your third one is, it's like pitching game seven of the world series. I was like, Shh, I was like, I better not fuck this up. So that's kind of after that, I just, 
I just said, this is what I want to talk about. I want to, you know how like, <clears throat> you know, how like super religious people, and I don't mean this in a bad way, but super religious people are like so enthusiastic about their religion and what it's done for them to make them feel better that they want to tell you all about it. And maybe they knock on your door and want to hand out flyers or something. And you're like, dude, no, thanks. I feel, I, I now kind of understand how they feel because I feel so strongly about the information that I want to, and I think it's so important that I really want to make as many people aware of it as I can, but I have to make sure to balance that so that I don't come across as the, as the guys that show up at your door wanting to hand you literature about, you know, <laughs> their Lord and savior and stuff like that. So, so I, 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 you know, you have this, I, I felt this like drive inside of me to kind of want to keep going with this stuff and to, to write books and things like that. And then that, that, so when I was promoting the octopus in 2018, I was on with Jeff Berwick on his uh, podcast, the Anarchist, and we got done recording. Same thing. We were just chatting afterwards. And he's like, Hey man, he goes, he goes, it's all coming down. And I was like, what do you mean? He's like, you know, the banking system, the society, it's all coming down. I was like, oh, well, yeah, I mean, I, I uh, yeah. And he said, would you want to work? Hey, you want to write a book together? And I was like, okay, sure. I mean, yeah, I want to write another book. And he's like, I have, he's like, I have an idea. And he sent it over to me and he goes, take a look at it and see what you think. And I looked at it and I said, well, I have, I have an idea. And my idea was based off of what he said in that conversation when he said, it's all coming down. I said, why don't we do a book and we'll call it the controlled demolition of the American empire. And we'll show the parallels between the way you take down an actual building and the way you take down the American empire. And then I, and, and this was the image in my head the whole time that I thought we'll, we'll do a cover. Actually the cover was supposed to be four pictures of the building coming down sequentially, but it was too busy for the cover. So we changed it at the last minute, but to have building seven wrapped in the American flag as it's coming down, it's so symbolic. And I, I wrote out, I said, we could do this and this, you know, I, I, I just, I was in Costa Rica and I was totally inspired by, by this idea. And I wrote this whole thing out and sent it to him. And he sent me one sentence back. He goes, Oh, I like your idea better. <laughs> that was it. And then, and then we just started writing, we started writing the book. So that's awesome. So yeah, it's I, like, it's like people are like, Oh, so did you plan this? And you went to a publisher? Like, no, it's not that technical. Like you just sometimes have to just start, you know, you have to come up with your idea and you just start, you know, I was talking to Patrick Smith last yesterday. I was recording an episode with him. He took over for Jeff as the host of the Anarchist, and he's also the voice behind the audiobook of our controlled demolition which will be out uh, shortly and uh, and he was asking me like how do you how do you write like you know like do you have any tips for writing a book and i was like actually as a matter of fact i do but it's funny because i have no formal training i, I mean i have a marketing degree but i don't i don't have like a literature literary background or anything like that. I worked in real estate, still work in real estate. So nothing like that. But I just said that <clears throat> the way I did it, that made it so much, I think, easier for people to sort of tackle is that I didn't start on page one and then write to page 400. I started, I would open a Word document for each 
subject, you know, not even each chapter, but just each subject. So it'd be like private prisons. And that day I'd be inspired to write about private prisons. I'd write like three or four pages and then I'd be done. And then tomorrow I'd be, I'd see some article about big pharma and I'd be all set off and I'd open a new word document, big pharma. And I'd write that whole thing out as much as I could. And then I, at some point I'd have like 60 files or 60 documents inside of one folder. And then when I got done with it, all of those, I took, well, like with the octopus book, it's broken up into eight tentacles. So it's real easy. I went to my kitchen table and cleared everything off and took eight sticky notes and put each of the eight tentacles across the top, you know, each name, military, governmental, covert. And then I had like 50 sticky notes with each one of these concepts. And I like put them in the order, like un- I like lined them up and oh, I got to move this one up or I move that one over, whatever. And I did that. It took me like two hours to get it all lined up. And then I took a picture of it. And then I said, all right, that's it. Then I, then I just built the book block by block with each one of these topics and then just connected in the middle a little bit with like a paragraph or two that sort of transitioned from one topic to the other. And that was how I did it. And, and when you do it like that, it's like, it, it's, it's so easy that my octopus book, I wound up with 790 pages and wow. I had to cut it down to uh, 540. So I cut out... I cut out a book almost, you know, pretty much a book. Like a like Stephen out King novel. Yeah. Yeah. But it, it was because of the way I, I wrote it that allowed me to get kind of, I, I had no sense of how many pages it was, you know, I, I couldn't, I wasn't really counting them all up. So, so that's the thing is like, if you, and I was telling Patrick this and he's going, oh, wow. He goes, I've written articles before. He goes, it sounds like you're just writing articles. I said, yeah, right. Exactly. It'll be like an like think of each little chapter as each article, each topic. And, he, and I go, and then you just connect them all together. And he's like, holy shit, I can do that. So, so that's my, that's my non non-professional writing tip. <laughs> no, that's not falling on deaf ears. I appreciate that very much. I mean, it makes I, it easier. It makes it yeah, more no, manageable. You're, you're, you're putting mm-hmm. a, a roadmap to it. And I think that's really cool, man. I appreciate that. I didn't expect that at all. I actually own your book, The Octopus of Global oh, Control. Cool. It's one of my favorites. I've had it for a couple of years, but unfortunately I'm not in my little library right now. I'm in my, in the new studio here in Morris Plains, New Jersey, thanks to <laughs> Sam Tripoli. International got the, man. Got the hookup, but Back to you, Charlie. I mean, what you were saying before about this balance of like, we don't want to proselytize. We don't want to push this on people. We don't want to come off as those crazy Mormons or uh, Jehovah's that knock on your door. No offense to the Jehovah Witnesses. Jay and I, we, we got a buddy who's a Jehovah Witness. Remember remember him, Jay? Oh, but yeah. It's funny. They appreciate I appreciate their hustle, you know? Yeah, and I... I you know, I was just talking to David Wei, right? He's a, a Taoist monk. He went to China and studied in Wudang, right? And I asked him, I'm like, so how do you teach these things you've learned to your family, you know? And he's like, I don't, man. I don't. He's like, the way you do it is you imbue those qualities. You take on those methods. You take on those practices and you lead by example. And maybe in the first five or 10 years, your family's like, Oh, what's he doing? Maybe some, you know, crazy stuff. But then 15 years later, they're like, wow, that's really been working out for him. Oh my, you know, and then they start coming around, you know? So I think leading by example and really finding your tribe, right? Cause I'm sure 
Charlie, when you were writing the book in secret, putting post-it notes on your table, probably taking them off really quickly, hopefully nobody <laughs> would see it, you know, like you, I'm sure you weren't aware of how many people would be receptive to this, or did you, did you expect it to, to be a hit? Cause I'm sure, you know, it's, it's a hit. Like I heard about it four years ago, you know, I'm sure our audience knows about your book, but well, look, I had no, I started from a place of no expectation of even knowing if I would like writing. And then I liked it and then put it all together and didn't have, you know, and self-published it. There's because there's no, I mean, there's no way a publisher is going to touch this book. And I knew that going in. So I decided, well, what I'll do is I'll self-publish it and then I'll have to just go out and and promote it and do and talk to people about it and talk and get on shows and, and do all that stuff. And that's, that's what I started doing. And, and it may, I, you know, I felt like it, the, the, so the format of the book for people that don't know the, the octopus format, I did it a little differently because I used quotes from over 500 different people that had had either some relevant information or were a part of some important event in our history. And it might be politicians and it's, you know, bankers and rich people and actors and comedians and, you know, Joe Rogan and Bill Hicks and George Carlin are in there, but also the Clintons and the Rockefellers and the Rothschilds, all these quotes from them. And I use that to sort of make my points and sort of punctuate stuff and broke it up into eight different sections, eight tentacles. And, and I think just the, the layout of it, <clears throat> And the way that I tried to use bull, the, the, the number one compliment I've got on the book, and, and I'll take it, but it's a funny one, is, is thank you for using bullet points. And I was like, okay, good, you know, but because the format I got, you know, if I was talking about a, a topic that had a lot of evidence, I would just put do bullet points and just yeah. lay it out that way. And I guess visually, it, it, it made it a lot easier for people to just sort to sort of uh, process. So I tried to lay it out in a way that made sense. I tried to come at it as logically as I could. And more, most importantly, I tried to make it funny. And, and that I, I'm not a comedian. I appreciate good humor. I love I, I love George Carlin. And I love, you know, when Jon Stewart was doing The Daily Show back before The Daily Show became what it is now it, they had this way of delivering bad news with a laugh and and i liked that and i sort of aspired to to get some of that so you'll see a lot of quotes from those guys and rogan's in there a bunch and and you know, terrence mckenna's in there so who's not a comedian but he might as well be because his quotes are so hysterical that you've got to you, you you know, you've just got to love him. So I tried to make it as entertaining as I could because I knew that the subject matter was so dark and so heavy and so important. And so just, you know, it makes you just go, fuck, is there any hope that if I didn't put all the funny parts in there, you'd be jumping out off your roof. You know what I mean? And so I, I, that's, I think that's why people liked it because it was, they connected with it because it, it was, it took a, like, I laughed at the absurdity of it all. You know, I implied that Lindsey Graham owns multiple black dildos in it. Now, most normal authors don't take a shot at a guy like that. But I I I felt that I had to do things like that. I felt like, you know, that was that was what was going through my head, so I put it on paper. And 
and so I think people connected with that because they kind of feel the same way. Like, fuck, you know, fuck these guys. And, and so we would say that, you know, I would say that in the book, you know, these, you, you, this guy's a, this guy's garbage and then back it up with seven examples of, of all the shitty stuff he's done, you know? So it wasn't like I was just making it up and, you know, we all know Lindsey Graham is lady g you know <laughs> so, so why not and, and you know and that guy never saw oh, yeah. a war he didn't love so fuck him you know what i mean i'll i'll, I'll take a shot at him i don't care and, and and i think that just that that sort of approach to it i don't know maybe it just worked for some people the the controlled demolition book is it is different than that it's more it's you know, it's not, it's less my sense of humor and it's more like a serious tone with 249 footnotes in it, you know, real sort of like evidence backed things like that. So it's, whereas the other one, I didn't use any footnotes. I just used quotes. I wanted quotes to be sort of the footnotes. I wanted it to be like, when you go like, oh, what's he talking about? Then you hear Prince Charles say something, or you hear Prince Philip say, when I die, I want to come back as a deadly virus and wipe out half of the population. You know, when you're talking about the royal family, and then you throw that in there, and you're like, oh, shit, you know, okay, I didn't know. Did he really say that? It's like, oh, yeah, I mean, that's a attributed quote to him. So, so that was my version of, of footnotes for that. And so I, I don't know, maybe it's just, it's just, a, it's a strange book, you know, and it's, it's massive too. And I think people, maybe when they see it, they go, Oh, I don't know if I want to tackle that. And then they get, they start on it and they're like, Oh, this is totally this, you know, this is, it, it's easier to read than you might think because there's because uh, the quotes break it up quite a bit. I, I got to make the point because I took a really unorthodox approach to your book. Are you familiar with what the Grimerica show did for, I think they, I don't know if they still do it, but for a majority of their show's history, every intro, they would pick a quote from your book randomly and read it. And I loved that because I would just like hear the quote, it would stick with me. And then I would find it in the book later and read more, you know, and Graham and Darren were doing that for so long. And Graham was so funny. He would read it and get Darren to like, try to guess who made the quote. And Darren would just be like, dude, I don't fucking know half the time. <laughs> and it was just, it just made for like that curiosity, like, well, then who is it? And I would go look it up and I had your book. So it made it really easy, but yeah, the Grimeric show and your book kind of interestingly go hand in hand man i didn't know if you knew about that i didn't i didn't know about that i know that they have the book sitting on the desk yeah it's called the the show the uh ufo quote of the week they used to do and now it's just the quote of the week and they use their book i think originally it was just ufo quotes and then eventually they expanded it to all types of quotes and they used your book for that I, i don't know if they still do it but that's funny. I was just talking that's to hilarious. those guys too. Yeah. They're they're that that's great. Well, the first time I I did their show was I was at I live in Denver and I was at the Denver airport and I was getting ready to get on a plane and and I had my laptop and I had this microphone and I was I found this, this what I thought was a quiet place sort of upstairs away from everybody, but it was right under this speaker where they're like announcing all the gates and everything. And I was like, God damn, this is going to suck. And I wanted to be good on their show, you know, cause I love their show. And, and I didn't realize that they liked my book or anything. I, I, I had, I had no idea. Maybe you skipped the intros. <laughs> yeah, I guess. No, no, this, well, wait a second. 
what maybe episode was that? My quotes after this because I sent them the book. Okay, yeah, that so maybe would make I sense. think I was bef- I think I was before they were in- into the book. But anyway, I was into their show and I didn't want to I didn't want to screw it up. So I grabbed my laptop, and I'm like, where Where's a place to do this? And I see this employee stairwell, and I was like, Fuck it, I'm just gonna go there because it looks quiet. So I go back. I'm in the back of the. I, so halfway through the interview, it occurs to me, I'm in the employee stairwell of the Denver airport, which is weird enough uh, of a place. I look, I'm on a laptop computer, which makes it look like I'm hacking into them or something. And I've got a (laughs) microphone there and I just look sketchy and totally out of place. And I'm just thinking, Oh my God, I hope I don't get shot in the middle of this or like handcuffed or harassed. And, and those guys were, and finally it was quiet. So we were able to have like a, a good talk, but, but that, but those guys have always been two of my favorites. They're like, the Bob and Doug McKenzie of uh, conspiracy world, you know? Absolutely. Well, and that's the really cool thing about this community. And it, it's, it's really awesome that podcasts can facilitate this kind of promotion of authors, because I feel like there's so many amazing books that pushed me into this before mm-hmm. I even knew about podcasting. So they really go hand in hand. I think yeah. that, you know, spreading the truth and audiobooks and podcasts they all just fit together and then interviewing these authors like yourself it's just i mean i'm sure you've seen uh, a lot of you know returns from your time investment in podcasting right i'm sure it helps yeah. sell the book but yeah i mean as far as spreading the truth we have so many ways now to spread the truth how are you feeling about this this new incoming censorship and po- the possibility of us all being deplatformed off YouTube. I know this has been going on for a couple years now, but how are you as a, as an author and as a podcaster uh, avoiding that kind of uh, trend? Well, I mean, it's it's frustrating that it's happening. You see, I mean, we're writing about the the very thing, you know. I'm doing sh- I'm doing podcasts about the censorship and 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 they're freaking out because we're right over the target and they're the, the big media platforms and social media platforms are all in lockstep to shut down anybody that gets off of the established narrative. And that's what we do. And so they're, they have been instructed to go after us by their bosses at the council for foreign council on foreign relations. This isn't even secret. This isn't the, you know, the stuff that they release to the public. I mean, we can see this. So, they were given the orders to shut it down, you know, to get start with Alex Jones and those guys and get rid of them and make examples of, of these people. And, and, and it's not to say that, you know, we're all in agreement on anything or we're, that we're all necessarily agreeing with what Alex Jones says or anything like that, but you hate to see it happen to anybody. And, and the censorship is, is gross, but that's what you do when you, when you know you're busted, they're, they're acting, you know, guilty of these charges. I mean, we're accusing them of massive censorship and then they're proving us right by doing this over and over again. And that's what you do when you feel like you're losing your grip or that you want to lock everything down. I mean, you're sort of desperate because like they'll let you talk about the moon landing all day long, but the minute you get on Syria or the federal reserve or something that that's actually important, like right now important then they they just get rid of you and they don't and and it and they don't even care if they 
if it seems illogical. Like I was talking to Whitney Webb and and she's she got thrown off of Patreon. Uh, and Patreon said, "Well, we're we're going we're suspending you until you delete these videos on our channel about this medical disinformation this medical information." And she said, "Well, first of all, I'm not deleting anything." And they said, "Well, also, we need you to delete them off of your unlimited hangout website." And she's like, "Get the fuck out of here with I'm not you want me to delete my stuff on my website for Patreon?" And she said, "What is the reason?" And the reason they said was not, she says, is this medical disinformation? Is that what you're saying? And they said, no, we're not saying it's disinformation. What we're saying is that your information might persuade somebody to not take the vaccine. And she goes, so you're saying that my information is too good? <laughs> That's crazy. Now. And what are your Patreon kicked her that, off. <laughs> I'm just mind blown by that. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm just, you know. I think your first point was excellent, Charlie, about how we're seeing this ramp up because they're so desperate. And it's a real shame that Patreon is taking that turn because they were started by a musician and a tech guy who wanted to help bands get a personal following and actually have a career and not get screwed over. Freaking sellouts. And now they're becoming the system (laughs) and they're sold out people over, you know, and they might be good for like a cute little girl with a a ukulele and to get a bunch of followers. But for people spitting the truth, Patreon is not the place. And, uh, you know, I'm glad that, you know, unfortunately, Whitney Webb had to be the uh, martyr, so to speak, for Patreon, but it's a lesson learned for all of us. And I think that what's really hope bringing or, or inspiring is that there are so many cool platforms that are jumping up and uh, taking this new place. And they're not even alternative platforms. They're really mainstream. I mean, the capabilities of some of these new apps that us podcasters are getting on, like macroaggressions, they're amazing. Like the features are way different, way more in, in interconnected than you could ever be with just YouTube, you know, and you have control over whether or not you're getting ads. So, you know, without turning this into a big spiel here, I just want to remind people that there is hope, but it takes, you know, getting involved and and stepping up and buying someone's book or or stepping up and and paying for someone's paywall and supporting their their podcast if you like it, you know? And have you seen that happen with your show as people reached out and, and supported you, Charlie? Yeah, for sure they have. And what is, what's funny is that you're talking about alternate platforms and things just two hours ago, I did an interview with Jeremy Kaufman, the CEO of Library, and talked to him about the SEC started their their case against Library and how, what bullshit that is. So even when you start your own platform and you're the good guy, and I'm, you know, I mean, we, we've had Jeremy on Union of the Unwanted, and I saw him speak down in Mexico at at, at Berwick's in Acapulco in 2020. And he's, he's a cool guy, man. And he's, he's coming from the right place. And he, he, he's not about censorship. He's about transparency and he's been cooperating with them fully. And he's been running his company the right way. And he's been not doing anything wrong. And they're still going after him because they, they, they fear this change. This is what, this is what desperate and, and, and psychotic governmental agencies and governments do. They, they see something that they pose it, 
or they view it as a threat to their existence and they just start banning it or arresting it or trying to destroy it because they just can't they they don't want the competition they don't want somebody doing it differently or better and you know they see things like blockchain technology for you know and and that's what libraries like libraries the blockchain technology and then odyssey is the you is the video platform brand name so it's so it's library slash odyssey and they're they're just doing like what youtube should do or what youtube used to do they're just doing it better they're making it so that you can tip people in in crypto and you can you can earn crypto as a content creator it's a great idea it's a great thing and the sec is like oh we see this as we don't understand this we don't like this it's a it's a threat you know it's oh it's a it's a security so we're going to charge you with selling unlicensed securities and they're like what are you talking about so and it's just, it, I mean, and his story is amazing. And we talking about what the government, the government won't give them an answer on anything. They won't tell them what, they won't tell them what they're looking at them for. It's just like, they're having to guess. It's, it's the most preposterous story ever. And that is, that's like normal behavior now from the government towards anybody that, that, that steps up and does something a little bit differently. I mean, if you're the Silk Road and, and Ross, uh, you wind up in prison on a double, double life plus 40 years for operating the Silk Road. Really? Honestly? Like that, murderers don't get that. But the government will, will make an example out of you if they, if they want to send a message to the rest of the, the citizens, don't fuck with us on this. You know, we, this is something that we will, we will make your life hell. Julian Assange, Chelsea Manning, you know, we will, Ross Ulbricht, you know, we will put you, we will bury you under the prison. If you fuck with us on some of these things, if you expose our war crimes, or if you mess with our currency, you do those things and we will come after you. And so that's what Jeremy's facing right now. And it's really scary. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And how, how, like, you know, how can we get our grip on this and twist it into something that it originally wasn't made for yeah. yeah there's there's this guy actually i don't know if you're familiar i forget the name of his website but he's recently launched a satellite and is hosting his own everything from this satellite and i think moving forward we might see this further decentralization of the internet on the furthest end from the user, like this really deep end where the servers live, you know, parts that I don't understand is just one of these non-coder people. But, you know, I think the implications of some of the technological innovations in this space are so profound that that's a big reason why they're locking us down. I mean, I, I heard on, uh, a podcast I was on last night, someone saying this and that about these, uh, you know, boo-boo shot passports that they're going to give us, you know, and I'm like, listen, any fear they can do to keep you at home, buying from Amazon, getting your groceries delivered from Amazon, that's what it's all about. And then obviously the people who are going to go consume brain dead content at stadiums and concerts and no offense, you know, I'm just a jerk. I don't like that kind of stuff. If you like that kind of stuff, no offense, but like <laughs> the, brain, your sports. <laughs> the brain dead people who are going to be like, yeah, I'll get a vaccine so I can see the Mets. You know, it's like, that's, that's yeah. fine. I'm not involved with that i'll never be involved with that and i'll just hit the road and drive to another state if they're gonna tell me you know i gotta get a vax for this or that and 
I have that privilege because I'm a young guy. I'm not tied down to much right now, but I, you know, it's scary for a lot of people because some people have jobs they can't lose. People have families that they have to take care of. And if we're going to be pushed to take some mean (laughs) boo-boo shot vax, you know, we're going to be screwed. And this isn't going out to YouTube, Charlie. So I guess we really don't need to censor ourselves that much, right? They they don't ban RSS feeds yet, right? (laughs) Not well, not yet. But I think I think maybe I think maybe Apple has done it to Ricky uh, a couple of times. And that's exactly why we are all getting on the podcasting 2.0 index, man. And that's something we've been talking about behind the scenes. But yeah, yeah, I think I want to thank you for all the help that you've been for me trying to figure this out we're still working through it but you're just making it happen and i really appreciate it yeah no i it's a privilege to be working with you charlie i gotta ask you have you ever had any strange encounters with ufos i know you're out there in in vegas that's kind of a hot spot what's the what's your thoughts on ufos maybe you don't believe in them maybe you do what, what's your you ever experienced any of that so n- so I have I have two stories, but I it's it, neither of them happened to me. But but all right. So the first one is my ex-wife. Where this was like 2005. My ex-wife and I were living in Vegas. I don't live in Vegas anymore. Now I'm in Denver, but but I did live in Vegas for a long time. And 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 her aunt and her aunt step aunt. I don't know. It's her stepmom's sister or something. And kind of not her blood family but like family by marriage husband and wife are coming driving through and they ask if they can come stay with us for the night and and they're going to bring a bunch of wine and we'll get food and we're like sure absolutely they're older than us right so i was like in my mid-30s and and they were like in their late 50s wealthy you know real estate developers and everything no nonsense people highly educated no bullshit the wife is kind of quirky, but you know, she's kind of, you know, you get a drink in her and she's, she's a little quirky. Well, well, we're, we have a couple glasses of wine and all of a sudden she says, you know, I've been followed by UFOs my entire life. All my sisters (laughs) have. And I was like, what do you mean? She's like, we, we would see them when we were kids and we would see them, you know, when we were teenagers and we, we all, we just have always seen them. I was like, do you, I said, do you think they're like tracking your family? And she's like, she's like, well, yeah, I think, you know, I think that it's, you know, they're following, I mean, they're keeping in touch with us over time for, so yeah, they're obviously tracking us in some way. And I was like, Oh, that's crazy. She's like, she's like, so actually what happened not too long ago was that I woke up in the middle of the night and there was a gray right at the foot of my bed. And I'm like, okay. And, and she said, and, and he was there, I said, were you scared? And she says, I was, I was, I was startled, but I wasn't fearful. And, and I was like, and I look at the husband who's like, if you, if you look up like rich white devil, it's (laughs) this guy, you know, like straight banker, straight as an arrow banker guy. And I look at him and I go, were you in the bed too? And he said, oh yeah. And I go, and, and he said, he said, it put its hand on my toe and I felt like I was having a heart attack. He said, I just froze up. And I was like, are you fucking with me? And he's like, no. And I was like, 
holy shit. So we both were like looking at my ex-wife and I were like, Oh my God. Like, Oh my God. What do we, and I remember they went to the bathroom. I was like, what the fuck is going on here? Like, <laughs> right. like I'm like, I feel like she's a little, she's a little, you know, quirky, but he's like, no bullshit. And he is saying that he, that this thing touched him and he thought he was going to die. He thought he was having a heart attack. I just, it made it so real because this guy was the last person in the world. I would think I would hear this story from, but that's what he said. He said it, it he said it was in the bedroom. Boom. And, and they're in Marina Del Rey. And that's, a I've, been, I've been, you know, in a $4 million house in Marina Del Rey. That's a real, so they're not out in the woods, though, you know, with, with like certain people have this strange connection and, and it's enough to where other people who join into their circle may experience it but it seems to center around certain people like have you heard of a chris and ryan bledsoe and, and their whole story ryan was recently on uh tinfoil hat i think no two episodes I, I know ago. the name but i don't know the story yeah and that's exactly like their family like a very strange connection to all this and and i think it does center around certain people you know it's very maybe that woman had happened to be that person or maybe even the straight laced banker maybe they were trying the aliens were trying to get to him he didn't want to be probed (laughs) (laughs) oh man i mean he sold it to me because it it, he sold it because it it, because of just knowing him and knowing that that just didn't seem like something you know and i thought well god i mean how do you even tell somebody that story? You know, like, and, yeah. and, it, and to be, to be clear, like it did, I didn't see it. So I can't, you know, it's no, but that's still, it for what I it's mean, worth. But it, it, it was, compelling. it was, unless they just like fucking with people at dinner parties. And then I right. don't know. <laughs> but, you look uh, over to the guy and you're like, you're like, she's, she's bullshitting me. Right. And he's like, no, <laughs> no it touched my toe. <laughs> Oh man he, he was like he looked like he was reliving it that's i was watching his face and he looked like he was reliving it and i was like i was like <laughs> i felt so uncomfortable i was like what the f-? so so that's that's story number one story number two is is also another story that is told to me by a guy that experienced it but it didn't happen to me so once again you can factor that into the bullshitness of it all. But I knew this photographer, this was back in 95. And, and, and I had done some, some pictures with there. There were some pictures that he was doing for me. And, and we were just wrapping that up, bullshitting and stuff. He goes, Hey, I, you want to hear something crazy? He goes, I got invited by the air force to go out to area 51 to shoot photographs for them. I go, that's cool. I, and I go, I go, uh, no offense, but like, don't, they're the air force. Don't they have a guy that can shoot pictures? He's like, yeah, I stick in the same thing. You know, I, I go, I'm, I'm sure you're great. He goes, yeah, but he's like, they pay well. And, and it's for a couple of days. And he's like, fuck it. It'll be cool. You know, I don't, why not? You know, I was like, yeah, good for you, man. Like, go for it. Like, uh, you know, like uh, tell me all about it later. Right. So two weeks go by and I call him up and I said, Hey man, are those pictures ready? And he goes, Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Come on down. He said, when do you want to come down? I said, well, like, how about this afternoon? And he's like, that's fine. And I go, Oh, Hey, by the way, how was area 51? He goes, I can't talk about that. Click. And hands up on me. I was like, dang. Okay. So now I'm intrigued. 
So I go to go there this, that afternoon and his wife is there at the, and they, it's like an industrial warehouse, mini warehouse area. And she, they work, you know, they own this photography studio and she answers the door and I go, what the fuck is going on? He's all, I, he hung up on me and she goes, oh, he's all freaked out. And I was like, about, about area 51. She's like, oh yeah. Oh, he's, he's a mess. And so anyway, like I, I go around and then, then I see him and I'm like, Hey, let me see the pictures and everything. And I go, dude, what is going, what is going on? He goes, we can't talk here. I was like, all right. And so he's like, we got to go outside. So we go outside, we go out around by, by the big dumpster. And he goes, all right. I said, are you okay? Cause you seem crazy right now. And he's like, He's like, man, I think they're listening to me. I think I go, what happened? What happened? He goes, all right. So I go there and I'm in this, you know, he says, I've got an arm. I've got two armed guards with me the entire time. And they want me to take pictures of these things. This, this, this one thing. And the way it's set up is that he doesn't have access to the camera. He has the camera. And when he's done shooting the film, when it's, it's all, it's the film camera, you know, not digital one. So it's, this is 95. So when he's done with that role, he hands it to the guard who takes the film out and then reloads a new one. So he's never in control of the film. And, and so that they kind of, you know, used him, but he never had access to the film. So I was like, okay, that's why they, they used you. So he, I said, so what happened? He goes, he goes, we go into this, this air, airplane hangar that is built into the side of a mountain. And he said, it is the biggest airplane hangar you will, you can even imagine. And they, and there is this thing in there that is like a silver Volkswagen bug about the same size of that. And it, and it's, it's being like held by like a mechanical arm that's holding this thing upright <clears throat> and they push it out. They wheel it out, out of the hangar, out onto the tarmac. And then there's a guy with a scissor lift that has these controllers and, and he's clearly operating the thing. And, and it's like, if you've ever been to a carnival and you've got the gyroscopes, like you'll get inside of it and grab on like this. And then one circle goes this way and another circle goes that way. And then a third circle goes, and you just start kind of going up and down and all around. He said, that's what it was like. And if you ever saw the movie contact, it's like that where the, the thing is, is spinning around. So he said, they turn this thing on and this thing just starts spinning, starts whizzing. He goes, but it's not making any noise. <clears throat> but he can tell that they're, they're cranking it up because it's going faster and faster and faster. And he's taking pictures, you know, and all that. And they take this metal arm off of, they disengage that. <clears throat> and the thing is just hovering there. And then it goes up straight up and they move it. And he said, you could, he goes, I could tell it was going faster, but I couldn't hear anything, which was really weird. But it, it was just, you could tell it was just moving faster. He goes, and then it just, it just disappeared. It just wasn't there anymore. And the guy goes, look, look way, way, way down there. And he goes, and then it was like, boom. And it just appeared over there. And he said to me, that was the point where I thought they weren't going to let me walk out of there alive. Yeah. And I was like, what the fuck did you see? You know, <laughs> what is this? And he said, well, they called it the acorn. And I was like, the acorn, huh? He says, it looks kind of like an acorn. And I was like, wow, that is a crazy story. And then I'm watching the History Channel like 15 years later. And I see them talking about the Nazi bell, the Der Glocken. And they said that the nickname for it was the acorn. And I was like, holy shit, that's what he saw. That's what he saw. That's He saw that fucking acorn thing. 
And so I, you know, once again, I wasn't there. I didn't see it. So it's like, it could all be bullshit. Of course. I mean, I, I, I confess well, that it could you know, be, but knowing what you know about operation paperclip. Yes. Yes. Now. I mean, now that all makes sense. And once again, the context of the story was much like the other guy, you know, being just like dead serious, telling me that this thing touched him. The, the authentic paranoia in this guy was made this sold the story to me. You know what I mean? Because he's like standing there talking, he's like sweating and I'm going, Holy shit. Like he was reliving it too. So it, it, the whole thing was just, it, 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 I left there thinking, all right, I don't know if that's alien technology or, or, just Nazi technology or, or governmental technology or whatever. But, but all I know is that he, he saw that and he just about shit his pants. So, and, and, and you know, and I, I've never talked to him since then. And I probably should. I mean, it would be, he, he, I don't wonder if he'd even remember me, but, it, but I remember that story because he told it to me and I was just totally transfixed, you know? Yeah. So I, so you asked me if I have any UFO stories, <clears throat> I have, those two that are sort of like secondhand, secondhand, That's you know, right. so maybe two seconds equals a first. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know if it works that way. <laughs> you know, I'll tell you what, because that makes sense. I mean, like you said, it took like maybe 9 11 for you to get into all this stuff, and mm-hmm. this happened in 95. So maybe you know, the, the significance wasn't quite there yet, but. Yeah, man, that's really interesting. I'm sure there's more evidence that would support that too. I mean, recently on Tim Paul Hat, they had a guy named True Ott on the show, and he yeah. talked about how he was friends with a man who took the secrets to his death about yeah, his, saw that you know squadron that he flew into Antarctica on Operation High Jump. And I mean, it's those kind of little stories that once we're in this podcasting space and we're able to weave them all together, you really start to see the connections and see the bullshit too, because there is some bullshit in this realm. But, you know, I think overwhelmingly there's more truth when you really dive deep enough, you know, and, and man, it's been a really awesome conversation, Charlie. It's been good to get to know you a little bit more. And I'm glad my, my buddies here got familiar with you because now they get a reason to go buy your book, The Octopus of Global Control and the new one, The Controlled Demolition of America, right? So of the American Empire. Of the American Empire. See, I knew I was going to say the United States, but I figured it was America. But either way, the American Empire, which is appropriate because, you know, we're more of an empire than a democracy, really. So absolutely show some respect, Mark. <laughs> but it's been a pleasure, Charlie. Thanks, guys. I appreciate it. It's yeah, been fun man. hanging it's out with fun you guys. Time. We hope to have you back on in the future. And uh, of yeah, thanks for listening to the My Family Thinks I'm Crazy podcast, folks. Take it easy and have a good night. What the fuck is going on? Mark is bananas. Crazy. Okay, this guy's losing his mind. I'm Don't listen crazy to him. For feeling. So lonely Follow us on patreon.com slash mftic. That's patreon.com slash mftic. <laughs> <laughs>